invite you to take your Bibles and open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are looking this morning at verses uh, 26 through 40, and our title is Proper Worship, Proper Worship. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 says this, what is the outcome, brethren? We assemble, each one has a psalm has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him judgment. But for his mother who is the first must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets, spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Well, this is, uh, I'm not sure how many messages we've had in this section of 1 Corinthians, but uh, it's been about 20, I think, from chapter 12 through 14. And we've been focusing on spiritual gifts, and all of chapter 14 has really been focusing on tongues and prophecy. And as we open up and jump into this section, this last section of chapter 14, what are some of the things we've learned about spiritual gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy? What are some of the things that you can tell me about tongues and prophecy in the early church? Tongues were spoken languages. They were known languages. It was, if it was properly practiced, it was the gift where somebody was, had the ability to proclaim the wonders of God in a language that he or she had not yet uh, learned formally. And so they were able to proclaim, uh, and it was, uh, we, we walked through uh, the book of Acts. We saw in Acts chapter 2, it went, it went to the first, Acts chapter 8, it went to the Samaritans, Acts chapter 10. It went to uh, the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, and then later on in the book of Acts, it went to uh, some disciples of John the Baptist. So we saw that, and it was there were people listed in Acts chapter 2 from 15 different nations hearing the wonders of God in their own tongues, in their own languages. What are some other things we've learned about tongues? Yes. Tongues were a sign for unbelievers, not believers. We've seen that, and uh, chapter 14 clearly states that. Uh, in that uh, unbelievers would see that, and uh, especially unbelieving Jews. And there was a quote we looked at from Isaiah. It was a sign because uh, 
Uh, Isaiah had prophesied to the Jews in Jerusalem, 700 AD, told them that uh, should listen. listen. They said he was simple. He prophesied to them, says, well, you're going to hear very difficult things from uh, and, and, and you're going to be ordered around from people from other tongues. And he was speaking about the Babylonians who would come in and, and take them over, and even the Assyrians who would take much of the southern kingdom as well. Um, but uh, he was also, uh, Paul uses that same passage and applies it towards tongues as a sign that you better listen to the prophecy about the Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you don't, something bad is going to happen, and something did bad, something bad did happen, and that is that Rome came in in AD 70, just a few years after this was written, and, uh, and desecrated the temple. So it was a sign for Jews, uh, specifically unbelieving Jews. What else? Yes. Tongues required interpretation. Why? Because understanding is important. And we talked about a philosophy of ministry that begins with uh, God's word being clearly taught or spoken. And that you, should, you need to understand that so you can apply it to your lives so that you'll change so that God will be glorified. And if it's spoken in a language that you don't understand, you cannot apply it to your life. And so that understanding was key. And for that reason, Paul put a lot of emphasis on prophecy because prophecy involves speaking forth the word of God. And foretelling involved new revelation. But much of prophecy involved speaking forth the word of God uh, as it had already been revealed. And so uh, that kind of speaking forth the word of God was something that was important for the church so they could learn because they didn't have the scriptures yet completed. And so they needed to hear God's word. Certain individuals, the gift of prophecy to be able to foretell and foretell the word of God. But uh, tongues functioned in a similar manner, but only if somebody came in and interpreted for everybody to hear. And so that's was that's we also learned about that. Well, we're coming now to um, this section, verses twenty six through forty of chapter fourteen, and we're going to see uh, seven features of first century worship that really should help us to honor God more in our worship. And this is uh, uh, we learn a lot about worship. Not all of it translates directly to us because this was written to the church in Corinth. And Corinth had a problem by abusing a lot of things in the church. And so we'll see some of that. But let's take a look at seven different features of first century worship. And the first one is that it was to be edifying. Worship was to be edifying. It was to build one another up. Verses 26 through 28 teach this clearly. It says, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. First of all, see, he's running throughout this, speaking to believers, just a lot of affection with him, and um, reaffirming them. And uh, he, he, he points back to the outcome, or what is... What is the word then, therefore, back to verses 20 through 25, that mindless worship or worship without understanding is worthless because it has no ability to glorify God. And so he says, he has a list here. When, when you come to assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, 
has an interpretation. He's giving a picture here of what a first century worship service looked like in Corinth, and it's somewhat different than we have today. And some people say, well, let's take this and let's apply this today. Uh, but there, you know, one of the interpretation rules of interpretation is you're looking at passages and trying to determine whether it's descriptive or prescriptive. And he's describing what the service was like at a time where they didn't have the scriptures. There are other places in scripture that tell us what we should do in services. And so this wasn't, and some of those things are not listed here. We're not told here about prayer. We're not here told here about reading of scripture. And uh, those are things that we shouldn't neglect in the, script, in the, in the services. And so uh, this wasn't intended to be a comprehensive. There were many participants some were maybe sharing a psalm or singing a psalm. Some were um, uh, uh, giving a, a message from a tongue and then someone else was interpreting. Sometimes there was somebody who was, through prophecy, re- re- revealing a new revelation to them. There were some who were teaching, which would have been teaching what has already been taught, maybe from the Old Testament scriptures, uh, which they did have. And now they're relating that to the Messiah. And so we're seeing... Uh, this this thing, but the, this idea that the, the service had many different uh, elements to it, but everything, let all things, end of verse 26, be done for edification. That word there has the, it's, two, it's a compound word, and the, the words at the roots there are house and build. So let everything be done like you're building up a house, but you're building up the body of Christ. He says in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, each in turn, and one must interpret. And so there's this idea here, and this is is something that those who say that tongues are for today, they just don't practice it this way. Those who say that, that, oh, we speak in our church, first of all, and just to reiterate this, this is not my uh, soapbox. This is not, it's not my goal in life to find every tongue speaker and make them a non-tongue speaker. Part of the reason for that is because I don't believe what some churches practice today and call tongues is actually tongues because it's not known languages and it's not done the way that it was done in the church. And it's from descriptive to prescriptive, at least for that time. It should be worth the most three and each in turn and one must interpret. There are imperatives there. This is this idea that you should have one person at a time, two or three at the most, And there should be interpretation so that everybody can understand and be edified because one of the key principles is that you are to build one another up using your spiritual gifts. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, interpreter, he, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. I think that let him speak to himself and to God is simply describing that, uh, okay, and when he says let him be silent in the church, it's not that he can't ever say anything in the church. Maybe he has another gift. Maybe he has a psalm or some other way he's participating in the church. But when it comes to tongues, the context is tongues. This person may have the gift of tongues. It seems like it's evident that this person does. And they say, hey, I, I, I feel some tongues coming on. And I'm, I, I would like to share my tongues. Can I share my tongues? And they're saying, well, do we have an interpreter here? And it's silent. And so, no, brother, not today. You know, this is not the day for tongues because we don't have an interpreter. And if it's, if it's just you up there speaking a language, we'll all sit around and saying, hmm, that was interesting. I don't know what it meant, but... Thanks for taking up some of the time. 
you know, our chickens in the oven or whatever it is. But it's, it's just this idea that, that uh, uh, you know, it, it actually can become a very selfish thing because you're displaying your gift, but it's not benefiting anyone else. It's just kind of raising yourself up. Yes, question. So it is proof that it's not supernatural if there was no interpretation. I think that uh, I think the gift of tongues. So all spiritual gifts are spiritual. They're supernatural. They aren't natural gifts. So we're not talking about the natural ability for languages. Um, and I think that as I read this passage, and it's hard in the, in, in First Corinthians fourteen, it has its challenges for sure. Part of the reason it has challenges is because some of what Paul speaks to the church is the abuse of tongues. And some of it is actually them speaking tongues, but doing it improperly. So assuming that here he's speaking about the proper gift of tongues, it would be supernatural that you could speak into it, speak to it. But it seems like there needed to be someone else there who had the supernatural ability to hear it or somebody from that country, I suppose, who had the natural ability to hear it. Um, But, uh, and then they would be able to interpret. Um, But in this case, I mean, we're talking about the church in Corinth. Most everyone in the church of Corinth would have spoken Greek. So it wasn't the multicultural dynamic that you had, for example, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when people from all over the Mediterranean world came to Jerusalem whose mother tongues were different, and they heard that. So, um, But I think, I think that we're looking at um, this idea that... Uh, 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 It's a supernatural gift, but there must be an interpreter there as well. And it's a supernatural gift that is not indispensable. I heard one pastor, the two pastors talking, and the charismatic pastor, pastor, what's on tongues in your church? And he said, well, assuming that that there were, uh, there was interpretation, and it was an orderly, uh, we would say it's supernatural. I think I would have a problem with it because we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, that the scripture says tongues will cease. And the tense there shows that they will stop on their own. And since they did stop at the first century, I would be very confused as to why it started up again. I don't think that tongues are for today. What people practice today and call tongues, I think it's simply ecstatic speech. It's some sort of gibberish that they have manufactured that is not a known language. And when you talk to most people who speak it, who who do this kind of ecstatic speech, they will be frank with you. And they'll say, yeah, it's not a known language today. It's my own personal language. Or they might say, it's an angelic language from 1 Corinthians 13, 1 and 2. But as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, and though I speak at the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, and if I, even if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, and they say, well, this is angelic tongues, uh, there's a couple problems with that. One is that angels always spoke tongues of men in the scripture. But secondly, even if uh, there is a heavenly language that angels speak, which in South Africa they always said it was Afrikaans, but I don't know. You go to Spain, you go to Mexico. They say, "Well, Spanish is the heavy." Thing. I mean, you've heard that. People say, "Oh yeah, you're going to have to learn Spanish because you're going to heaven, right?" Or so people like to claim that they have the heavenly language. But even if there is a heavenly language which we don't know, Paul was not saying that he knew that that he spoke on that because he's using in chapters in chapter thirteen verses one and two a writing technique called hyperbole, where he makes an 
exaggerated statement to emphasize a point. The reason we know that is because he says, even if I know all things and understand all things, and later on in the same chapter, he says, now I know in part. And so understand all things, using that exaggerated form of writing. So we get to this, this idea that today there are people, and you go to a church, and you will hear people, and at the end of a song, there will be a murmuring, and there will be this buzz, and people will be, and some people are louder than others, and it just sounds like gibberish. But even, even if that was something that was supposed to be practiced, even if they were right in that someone there is actually speaking tongues, it is not orderly, which is another underlying principle. The title of our message this morning is Proper Worship, and it comes from actually our last point, which um, our last feature, which skip down and look at verses 39 to 40. The last, the seventh feature of first century worship is that it was principled. It had certain principles. Verse 39 says, Therefore, my, bro- my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in, in an orderly manner. And so when it came to speaking in the supernatural gift in tongues, it was one or two in order, and then it was with someone who was actually interpreting. At the most, three. But they were going to move on to something else in the service after the third person, and each one had to have an interpreter saying what the message was. Um, and if you didn't have an interpreter, you just be quiet. You speak to yourself and to God. You pray. Okay, Lord, I guess today's not the day you want my, my gift, so I'm just going to see if you hear, and, uh, you know, that's, that's what it was. It's unclear to us. It's unclear to us whether the person actually speaking it could have understood it and could have interpreted it. Maybe he could have, but the, the end result is that he wasn't to do it unless there was someone else there who could interpret. Um, because, why? Because it didn't build up the body. Peter taught the same truth, that worship should involve building up of one another. He says it this way in 1 Peter 2.4, coming to him as a, coming to him, 1 Peter 2.4, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house of good to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we have this idea Peter talks about is that we are stones being built together into a house, and they're living stones that are actually growing as we're in this house. Um, But I really like the idea that using your spiritual gifts should build others up. I, I don't think that we... We come to church on a regular basis thinking, what can I do today to help build others up in the body of Christ? We're thinking a lot of times of just about ourselves. Uh, there's a little book called um, Life in the Father's House by Wayne and Josh Mack, and they say, they say this, quote, the difference between the leader's role and the member's role in the church is something that is often overlooked. To the detriment of the church, many church members assume that they are paying their pastor to do all of the evangelism, counseling, visiting, confronting, planning, and other ministries of the church. If someone has a need, they expect the pastor to meet it. If two people have a conflict, 
They expect the pastor to solve it. If someone needs to hear the gospel, they expect the pastor to share it and so on. But God has not designed the church to work that way. He has given pastors and other leaders the specialized role of preparing the saints so that most of those ministries will be carried out by the members themselves. And so part of each one of our goals here is that we should be coming to church to minister to others, be equipped so that we can minister to others. And so this is part of the reason why live streaming is not the ideal way to worship God, because it's a one-way communication. And you're not able to minister to others using the gifts that God has given you to build others up. And so Paul, using the gift of tongues and prophecy to illustrate his point that things should be orderly, they should be done to, to build others up. Again, we don't see that today. We see, here's a, here's a book, I looked this up, a little book by Leif Samuel called Time to Wake Up. He's one of the leading advocates on tongue speaking. This is how he describes to learn to speak in tongues. These are some of his actual uh, steps. Quote, let your tongue go in baby sounds. All right, next. Join hands in a circle with others who also seek the blessing. Thirdly, He actually says, massage your tonsils. Not exactly sure how to do it. uh, I don't know. Don't do it at breakfast. (laughs) Other leaders have said this, quote, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you will be out of the battle in five years' time. Even today, among extreme charismatics, There is a push that everybody should have this. It's something else we've seen clear from chapter 12. Not everybody should have this gift. And there is a forced way of trying to get people to learn how to to do this. As though it should be prized. Um, But rather, what do you need besides verse 28? If there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. I want to move on. We'll We'll come back for more questions, but I'm going to move on. Um, actually, let's not move on. Let's, let's stop. Let's slow down because, because what I'm hearing from people, even though this has been our subject for many weeks is that not everybody is yet convinced. They haven't seen it yet in chapter 14 and they're not yet convinced that tongues as some churches practice in them are a legitimate, legitimate form of worship. So any questions about that before we move on? Because, again, I think the scripture passage is clear here. But if it's not clear to you, let me help you. All right, think about that. We're going to move on then. Uh, Second second feature of first century worship that should help us to honor God more. 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. Um. Verse 29, we also see this in verses 36 to 38, but I'm just going to focus on verse 29 first. Let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. So in verse 29, he moves on from speaking about tongues and now he's talking about prophecy. And again, he's talking about the worship service and he's saying, hey, have two or three of you prophesy. Um, Now, prophecy, we know, was edifying for all because they could all understand it. 
And it must have been a great gift. I mean, in this case, it seems like he's talking about the, the revelatory part of it because he mentions the word revelation and down in verse 30. But in verse 29, the prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. If you were a New Testament prophet, you were to actually, I mean, you, you wouldn't have to prepare. I mean, think how nice that would be if you're in seminary and you're like, what am I going to seminary for? I'm a prophet. I just received divine revelation. I speak it forth. You know, but uh, when it was just expected that not only would you be able to do that, but that someone else would be there who would be discerning and be able to verify that you actually are a genuine prophet. And we saw in chapter 12, there was evidence that those with the gift of prophecy also had the gift of discernment. And so there were the church in Corinth had more than one prophet who would get up, who would speak on behalf of God. This is thus says the Lord. This is the word of God for our church. Give some revelation and others would have to actually um, verify that. So it was biblical. It was, it was something that was consistent with the rest of Scripture, whether it was Old Testament Scripture. Those who knew the Old Testament could actually say this is biblical. If it was something that had not yet been revealed, uh, then it's something of discernment within verify. 36 through 38 teaches the process. Uh, so I'm skipping down there, but it's, it's a similar truth that, that, hey, what you're doing should be biblical, Paul's saying. And he uses a bit of sarcasm, which Paul does from time to time. This is just after he's spoken about women, which we're, I think we're going to get to. We'll see. But verse 36, was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Or has it come to you only? Do you hear the sarcasm? He's saying, hey, Corinthians, are you where the church started? Is every other church supposed to follow what you're doing? Or are you the only ones who have truth? Which, by the way, if you go to a church and they say, we're the only ones who have truth. Yeah, if they think they have the corner on truth, red flags should go up. And so uh, he, he, he's sarcastically saying, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're worshiping as though you get to make up the rules for worship. And yet God has set the way he desires to be worshiped. And you're not following them. So listen to others who, have, who are aware of this and who have taught you this and who will continue to teach this. And Paul says, namely me. And verses 37, 38, we have one of the clearest examples of Paul letting others know that the words he wrote to them were the very words of God, that he had apostolic authority to speak on behalf of God to the churches. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, I think he's, he's talking about, or you have a spiritual gift, some revelatory gift, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are You think you're spiritual? You think you have a gift? You think you're a prophet? If you are, you'll recognize that what I've also written to you is the Lord's commandment. And where you do not line up with what I've written to you, you're wrong. Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. A little bit of a word. Hey, if you don't recognize this, you shouldn't be recognized by the church. If you're ignorant about this, you should be ignored. If you don't know, you should not be known. That's what he's trying to say there. So it should be edifying. The, the worship in the first century church was to be edifying, was to be biblical. Third feature, it was to be purposeful. 
verses 30 and 31. But if a revelation is made to another, the first one must keep silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. I want you to notice that uh, purpose statement at the end there, so that. Why were they doing it in order? Why couldn't prophets even just stand up and everybody prophesy at the same time? No, one at a time, only a few, so that people will learn. And so it had a purpose. It wasn't just to show off your gift, which I think was part of the problem in Corinth. Um, And so, uh, uh, again, we have something that we don't see in the church today. I don't think we have revelatory prophecy like this today. Uh, we, there are no prophets today. Uh, I think the prophecy that as speaking for God is a gift that would be of somebody who's a preacher or a teacher. But I do not think that the office of prophet exists today because there's no new revelation today. And the prophet spoke on behalf of God, not only teaching, but also giving new revelation And so, um, again, it it must have been really great not to have the preparation. But we know that there were those, even in the first century, who who had the gift of teaching uh, and who were preachers, but they they had to study, right? Timothy was told in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The more the scriptures were written down and collected, then the, 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 more, the greater the need was for the men who were teaching and preaching to actually study and prepare and rightly divide it. And so we have something here, this description where you have, and it seemed like from verses 30 and 31 that uh, it was almost like someone would come up and they would start to say, and thus says the Lord, and they would go forth for a little while, and then someone would say, hey, excuse me, uh, let me just stop you there because I'm getting the same thing right now. Let me take over, or I'm getting something else. Uh, and so then one would sit down, and the next one would get up. And again, we don't see that. I, at least I hope we don't see that. I mean, I mean, today, uh, I'm not going to sit down. Take my turn. Um, but up here, I, I would be happy to help you for that. if you're qualified, if you're gifted, if you, if you teach me about teaching. It's not that I have to, I have to be here. But really, the person who has prepared the most and is the most qualified should do the most teaching. And uh, that, that doesn't always happen here at Grace Church. Um, but, I mean, I, I did a funeral not so long ago, and John MacArthur was there at the funeral. And I would gladly, I, I wrote him several times beforehand saying, did you want to do the funeral? Do you, do you, you know, and so, no, you go ahead and do the funeral. So, okay, I did it. Somebody came up afterwards and said, John MacArthur was taking notes from your message. Good, good. It's the word of God. It's it's not me, but 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 I had prepared diligently for that, and that's what teaching requires. But prophecy, not so much. But it has both have similar purposes. Yes, question. Yeah. So I don't know, and that's a good question. At Pentecost, turn with me to Acts chapter two. It seems as though. There was no interpretation, but the, per- the people heard them speaking. This was also, it's something you should know, it was not a worship service. They had come out. There were about 100 believers at that time. And Acts chapter 2, it said, uh, 
verse 1, and when the day of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house, and they were all where they were sitting, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Um, now the Jews were living, the Jews who... Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So it seemed like on that occasion, there were some things different than what was going on in a normal worship service as the gift was practiced. This again was the very first time that tongues were spoken in this supernatural way that we have recorded in scripture. And it also had a visible manifestation of fire coming down in tongues and resting on their head and not burning them. So it was unique. Uh, Sometimes when we're talking descriptive, it describes what was happening in the early church. We say to ourselves, well, uh, this is the foundation of the church. And even things that happen when you build the foundation of a building, they look differently when the actual building part is going up. And so there were some things here that were different. Okay. Yes. Question. And again, the account wasn't how to do this. But it's possible that there could have been someone there with the people from Mesopotamia and, and saying, he's saying this, blah, 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 or whatever, you know. And, but, I mean, of course, they all spoke different languages. So, yeah, they would have, they would have all heard it. Seems like they each heard it uh, in their own language. Yeah. So are there people who believe that Acts is prescriptive and not descriptive? Uh, It's easy. Show me the fire. Right? If this is how it's supposed to be done, then don't do it unless tongues of fire are coming down from heaven upon your head. If everything in Acts is supposed to be done exactly the way it's done in Acts, then why don't we see that? You know, it's just different. It's foundational. All right, so... We've seen that, um, that uh, first century worship was edifying, was biblical, was purposeful. Verse 32, it was accountable. It was accountable. Verse 32 says, but the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Um, so even with prophecy, uh, there were those who had discernment and they were also there to point out false prophets. We know that there were false prophets because 1 John 4, 8 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 is another passage that would be a, a good passage to compare with this. It says, Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that what is, which is good. So there were those who had discernment who could listen to prophetic utterances and say, hey, let's, this is good. Let's hold on to this one. But that one, not so much. Let's, you know, what is this guy doing? Who is this guy? And so we have this idea that there was some accountability there. And once again, that's a good principle in worship, that 
It should be edifying. It should be biblical, for lack of a better term. That They wouldn't have used the term biblical, but in other words, consistent with the rest of God's revelation. It should be purposeful. It should be not only building up, but building up through understanding. And then it should be accountable. A fifth feature that should help you honor God more in worship is it should reflect God. It should be reflecting God. Look at verse 33a. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so here we see evidence of both God's character and his nature. We have this idea that, um, that uh, God is not some God who's going to be out there just causing chaos, but he's a God of order. He's not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. He cannot be honored when there's competition going on between other people. Let me be seen and let me do my thing. And I don't care about his rules and, and uh, all kinds of weird things happening. People rolling around and barking like dogs. And, you know, it's just, just uh, he's not honored by that. One commentator tells us that the pagan religions of ancient Corinth were often, often sounded like more like what was going on in the Corinthian church. He describes them this way. They had frenzied hypnotic chants in ceremonies in which worshipers experienced euphoric feelings of oneness with the god or goddess. Often the ceremony would be preceded by vigils and fastings and would often include drunkenness, contemplation of sacred objects, whirling dances, fragrant incense, chants, and other such physical and psychological stimuli customarily were used to induce the ecstasy. So I think that is one thing that people look for. They look for a feeling. That's why some people go to church. I look for the feeling. I want to go there and feel it. And again, I'm not against feeling. I'm not against experience. You can't read the scripture without experiencing. It's an experience to read the scripture. But when we prize experience, truth, then there's a problem. A sixth feature of first century worship that should help you honor God more in worship is it should be led by men. It should be led by men. Take a look at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the end of 33 probably goes with what comes after. It just doesn't make sense. And many of the early manuscripts, they divide it up that way. But anyways, as in all the churches of the saints, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are subject to themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husband at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, sometimes people come to this passage and they're like, well, what do you mean? Women can't speak? Like, I can't, like, I'm going to come and I'm going to put duct tape on my mouth and I'm just, okay, the Bible says don't speak. Well, again, context is everything. The word speak has been used. Take a look back at verse 28. He must keep silent. When must he keep silent? When it comes to tongues without interpreter. Verse 30, verse 30, the first one must keep silent. When must he keep silent? When he has the gift of prophecy, but somebody else has the gift of prophecy, and it's his turn to prophesy. Okay? Women should be silent, verse 34. The women are to keep silent, for they're not permitted to speak, but are to subject, subject themselves just as the law also says. So today, Pastor John is speaking on Ephesians 5, 22 and following, 23 and following on wives submitting to husbands. So that's going to be covered. It's great. We're going to have the next section here just very soon. But I think, I think that's foundational because I think, we talk, well, why can't women be 
pastors? Or why can't women teach? Or why can't women, and women can teach. Women are commanded to teach. They're instructed to teach. In Titus 2, women are to teach other women. And so, but they're like, doesn't, it just seems like it, 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 it belittles women. And let me just say this. Many in the church have been guilty of belittling women. And that's not what this is about. This has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority of genders. Okay? This has everything to do with God's design for the church. I give the illustration that if I were a teacher in a high school room and a boy walked in, I said, hey, uh, the, the podium's right there. Can you go over there and take roll as people walk in? And he takes roll. And a girl walks in next, and I say, hey, can you clean the whiteboard, right? And she says, oh, yeah, give me the manual labor. He gets to do the, the, the office job. You like men better than women. No, actually, he came in first, and since he's taking roll, it just made sense that he would, you know, that, that I need somebody to take roll first. Well, men were created first, and God has assigned them the role of leadership. And this passage is just as much of an indictment against men who sit back and stay home and watch sports and are not interested in church or who who take a back seat in spiritual leadership of the home. Men have a responsibility and will be judged before God. Were you leading your home properly? Were you a godly man? And it goes back to the creation order, or as this passage says, the law of God. It says in in verse uh, 34 at the end, just as the law also says, the law, first five books of the the Old Testament, Genesis uh, taught this. Genesis 2, verse 20 says, uh, for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable for him. Um, And he created Eve to be a helper again has nothing to do with superiority the same word for helper is found in the book of psalms as god is our help god's not lesser than me because he helps us but it is a helpmate uh when we look at genesis three sixteen, to the woman he said i will greatly multiply your sorrow and your in your concept and your conception in pain you shall bring forth children your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you well, her, her, the husband was already the one leading, supposed to be leading. Adam was already supposed to be leading Eve. Now her desire was that she was going to lead over him. She would have this sinful desire of, you know, you should have got off at that exit. Hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, you know, or like, what are you doing? What I'm and and uh, again, we're talking about a loving, caring relationship that is patterned after, first of all, in the home, Christ and the church. And if you say that women can lead in the home, you have to say that the church can lead Christ because there are parallel statements in Ephesians 5, 23 and 24. And God's design for the church is that men would step up and be leaders. In the Old Testament, women didn't have the right to learn like men in the synagogue. Even in the temple, remember there was an outer court for women. But... In the New Testament, it was liberating. Women come to church. Women should learn. Women have a responsibility for the family and teaching. And, 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 but men have that leadership role. And it's clear that they have a leadership role in the family. It's also clear that they have a leadership responsibility in the church. And therefore, men should not just sit back 
and let women take over the church. If worship is going to be done properly, men are responsible to lead in that. And it has everything to do with authority. Because in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14, Paul wrote, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He gives the rationale for that in verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2. For it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. Why? Why do we have this authority given to men? Because men are better than women? No amens today? Because men were simply created first. Then he really created something wonderful, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Wow. So it gives a second reason in verse 14. But I think that that helps us to understand. We've seen now that first century worship was to be edifying, biblical, reflecting God by men. And we also saw in verses 39 and 40, it was to be principled. And that principle was that all things should be done properly and in order. Tongues in the early church was not to be forbidden, but prophecy was to be encouraged. We have three minutes. Any questions? If you, if you open up a can of worms, I can, I can bring it back next week. Yes? Yeah, I think the law, I think he, the law were the first five books of the Old Testament. I think that's probably those passages back in Genesis. I think he was referring back to the creation order. Yeah, so I don't think it needs to be in the Levitical law or, yeah, I think it, it, it's probably the law in general. That's how I understood it as I studied. Yeah. Yes, question. So let, verse 29, the question is, what does it refer to? Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. I think in the early church in Corinth, There were those who had the gift of prophecy who would stand up while others are seated, who would prophesy, and then there would be a time where they would say, yeah, that's true. He's saying that what he's saying true, and those are the others there, the ones with the discernment. And then he would sit down, someone else would get up, they would prophesy, and they say, yes, that's true. Okay? So... Is there a contradiction between tongues were understood in other people's languages, but they also needed an interpreter? So to me, that makes perfect sense because I don't understand languages and there are people who do, but I need an interpreter. So I think when the true gift was being spoken, I think someone else needed to interpret from the language it was being spoken into the language that others could understand. I think that's what the interpreter did. So in the, in the church in Corinth, they would have had somebody who had to have known Greek but could either supernaturally or naturally understood the language being spoken, which is why it wasn't as efficient as prophecy because it carried out the same um, uh, uh, thing as prophecy did in the sense that it was, uh, it was giving revelation or speaking forth the word of God, but it had to go through a longer process. It was being spoken in a foreign language, then it was being translated, and then it could be understood and applied. Whereas prophecy was spoken directly in the language that everyone spoke, and so it could be understood and then applied. 
All right. Well, yes, last question. I don't know. I, I don't know why it would have needed to be supernatural. Um, so I think that uh, I don't know the reason why. Uh, um, what, I don't know whether there were people who, um, you know, they didn't have Google Translator or whatever the reason was. Uh, but I just, I, the way I read this chapter is that, and he, here's the thing, and, and this is why I think I shared this before. We had a couple come to our church one time when I was first pastoring and they wanted to uh, join our church, and they said, you know, we, uh, we've we read the Bible, and we're not sure. We think that, um, but sure that the way it is not the way the Bible says it should be practiced. And therefore, we'd rather come to your church, which doesn't believe it's for today, than to go to a church where we know it's being practiced incorrectly. And I think someone who values the word of God and is willing to submit themselves to that, I think that's the kind of attitude we should all have towards the word of God. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We do thank you for your word. Thank you for getting us through all these verses and helping us to understand a little bit better about what worship was like in the first century and different principles that we can apply today to encourage one another and prize what is right and purposeful and be willing to be accountable to others and reflect who you are in our worship and make sure that fathers and husbands are being leaders both in the church and that um lord that we also follow your principles and so we thank you lord for your grace in our lives we pray that you continue to teach us and shape us and make us into who you want us to be for your name's sake and we pray this in jesus name amen